Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so glad that you're joining us this morning. want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online, especially up in Port Perry. And for the first time, though, it's just a soft launch. I want to say good evening to everyone meeting at C4 Bowmanville. Let's say hi to them tonight. So glad that you're joining us uh, this evening, and thank you for all the work you've done preparing. Welcome back to week two in our new series called The Devoted Ones. We're back in 1 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible virtually or physically, I'd love you to turn there this morning. Paul is always trying to show us what does it mean, what does it look like to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ, to be devoted in a region, in an urban environment, in a city, whether in 65 or 70 AD or 2018. That's why we're going back to 1 Corinthians, back to Paul working day in and day out. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it mean for Christians, sent ones, devoted ones, to live in great, thriving, urban environments and yet still look more like heaven than the the city. Now, last week, Paul began to address three human conditions that are found in every single culture, every single town, every single village, every single city all over the earth. What do we do with marriage? What do we do about divorce? What do we do about being single or maybe single again? What does it mean and how does God define and react to each one of these categories? What is sinful? What is spiritual? What is allowed? What is not allowed? What is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ do? with marriage, wrestle with divorce, and understand singleness. Now last week, if you were with us, we clearly heard from Jesus and his word about the nature of marriage and the role of sex within marriage. But now we get to the opposite of the conversation. What do we do with divorce? Uh, a few months ago, my wife's aunt, who lives in the United States, sent us an unexpected package. When we received the package, we didn't know what was in it, but it was in an incredibly sturdy box. It was wrapped in packing tape, and so it took a long time even to open the box. When we finally opened the box, it was filled with all sorts of protective bubble wrap and et cetera, et cetera. And when we dug through it, we realized she had decided to send my wife some of the Royal Daltons that belonged to her grandmother. Yet despite all the packing and all the bubble wrap, they all were de decapitated, every single one of them. 
Now, what's so striking about that as Royal Daltons, if you even know what those are, some millennials are like, what's that? Google it, it's okay. Uh, when, you, when you see them, they're, they're not weak, they're sturdy things, but if you misuse that environment, if that box was not handled carefully, which it was not, even with all the protection and all the work and all the forethought, it still can get destroyed. So the same with marriage. Now, all of us sitting here today, all of you watching online, Every one of us have been touched by divorce. Either we've been through a divorce, we've instigated a divorce, we are children of divorce, we all have friends and family that are going through or are about to go through or have been through this incredibly painful reality. I know that when this topic comes up, literally when it's mentioned, all, all sorts of thoughts and emotions sort of burst forth in the room, sort of like a breaking of a dam. It's like picking at a scab. Things like fear and anger, relief, regret, pain, unforgiveness, betrayal, bitterness, lost dreams. And then when you add the word God or church, the tension and the questions get ratcheted up. Some of you are thinking here this morning or this evening later, you're thinking this is my first time at church or I haven't been here in years and this is the topic I get. Others of you want to get up and run right now because this is too close to home. Others of you, right when I uttered the words divorce, began to emotionally shut down. And others of you don't care because you're not married, it doesn't bother you, or your marriage is great. But we all need to actually stop at this moment and hear this. Our God is a good God, he's a good father, and he is loving. Do we all agree with that? And so since he is good and he is loving and he has best intentions for human flourishing and personal flourishing, let's do what we did last week. Let's be open to the spirit of God, open to the work of Jesus, open to the work of the Father, open to God's word without defense. Because unlike every other human being, Jesus has never, ever messed up and he is never out to hurt you. Now let's start with some needed background this morning. Number one, marriage is amazing and marriage is hard. We have conflicting needs and personalities and gender differences and desires and we're called for patience and mutual sacrifice and discipline and fidelity. Marriage is an amazing gift, but it's a fragile gift like I just demonstrated. And that is played out in our modern reality. The truth is divorce stats are still the same. The statistical truth is somewhere between 40 and 50% of, of marriages end up in divorce. And that grows in subsequent marriages. If you have a second marriage, it grows to 60%. If you're married a third time, it rises to 75%. And none of these stats, by the way, ever include common law marriages that break up. Now, what we're experiencing today in human history is unparalleled. And maybe you've never stopped to ask academically, well, why sociologically is divorce happening in such a way that we've never seen in the last 10,000 years? Well, beyond the issue of sin, which is at the epicenter of this, and struggle, scholars have articulated six major reasons why divorce has been and still remains high. Number one, especially in the West, is life expectancy. We are just living longer. I don't know if you know this. In 1850, south of the border in the U.S., the average life age was 40 years. Now we live longer, which has now added new strains and questions that we have not had to face in marriage for a very long time. Second, there are new demands on marriage. In the past, maybe you haven't thought this through, in the past, marriage was about economics. You had more children to work on a farm. It was the foundational unit of production. But interestingly now, families have become the foundation of economic consumption. 
Now we focus on things like what will we do and have together. The focus of marriage is companionship, which by the way is great, but the other past issues are not as central. Third, the greatest reason for marriage breakup is unfulfilled expectations. We believe as a culture in something called soulmates, which is honestly garbage. It's a pagan ideal. It has nothing to do with Christianity. This idea that there is one person out of 7.2 billion people, and if I find them and they find me, they will fulfill every sexual and emotional. And, and on. We know it's not true, and yet every film we watched and do watch preaches it. We also live in a time where we have luxury. We are sitting in the top 3% globally financially out of 7.5 billion people. And so since we have luxury, we have time. And since we have time, we can build expectations that have never existed before in marriage. Then there's sexual heat. We live in a sex-soaked culture. We live also in a culture that idolizes and promotes and fights for youth and figure and firmness and sexual appeal, which, by the way, never changes which constantly attacks any marriage sitting anywhere across C4. The call to embrace the invented and the airbrushed and fantasy, the access to pornography in a way that we have never seen, that is why it has now been called the new drug, which always on the surface looks better than the reality of day to day. All of this invented fantasy pushes us away from our spouse. Why? Because we're all getting older, but the thing on the screen never changes. Also, our culture has moved away from lifelong relationships and commitments. I mean, the only two things that you are a member of now in this world is Costco and the gym, and you don't even go to the gym. Permanence has moved to short, mobile, immediate life, which threatens marriage, which is about the long game and fidelity. And there's more. There are a lack of role models. Psychologists will tell you that divorce breeds divorce. Fewer people have had long-term marriages and families, let alone those who are the culture makers, those who are famous influencers. They themselves are not modeling this, which informs us as a culture. And lastly, and most significantly, of course, is the change towards women. Divorce was a male-dominated act for the last 10,000 years. It was almost never allowed for women. One scholar wrote these words, the divorced person especially a divorced woman, is no longer viewed in a negative light to the degree that predominated earlier. Now she, as a woman, is economically independent, which was not the case in previous generations. And the result of these changed attitudes and status have been nothing but epic and phenomenal. Women are now less likely to remain in any abusive situation, or even if it's not abusive, actually they will not stay in a marriage where their needs are not being met. Now, please don't misunderstand me this morning as I get going. I'm not saying that the independence economically of women is bad at all. It's good. Nor am I actually chastising some idea that staying in abuse. Listen, what we're just saying is this is one of the most significant factors in the rise of divorce. And then we all get to church. And many of us have experienced two extremes if you've done church for a while. For many, divorce is taboo, and if you have been divorced, you feel ostracized, or you feel like a second-class citizen, or a second-class Christian, or some people say, I'm not even sure if you're a Christian at all. The other extreme, which has taken more of a foothold in the last 20 years in the church, is the opposite. You don't need to fear God. God is love, and he doesn't really care what you do with divorce and remarriage. Divorce isn't that bad, and here's the truth. We know so much better anyways, and if Jesus sat down with you and he heard all the facts, he would agree with you. Actually, Jesus and Paul probably were wrong on this. Now, the problem is actually both of those extremes are unbiblical. 
So today we are going to unashamedly and with grace and with truth walk through what the Bible says about divorce, deal with some of the questions we have. How do we actually support people after divorce? Do we see if there's any hope before or during divorce? Now some of you today are going to find freedom that you have not ever had. Others of you are going to be convicted very clearly by God today and he's going to say you're in sin, but all of us are going to be given clarity. And I want to remind us all this morning that this is written to Christians. We are gathered here as a Christian community. If you're a seeker, a skeptic, you are most welcome here today. But I just want to remind you that Jesus Christ is not just Savior, he is what? Lord. And the reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed through his word also has to have preeminence when it comes to the conversation, not just about gender and sexuality and marriage, but also what we do with divorce. Now, before we get to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is working this out, like in a church, just like ours, in a large urban center that's highly sexualized and multicultural, all that stuff, we need to get back to Jesus. And we're going to find out that Paul was fundamentally aware of Jesus' teaching. The story uh, that we're going to hang out with with Jesus today is in Matthew 19. It says some Pharisees came to test Jesus. Don't forget that. They don't care. They're just here to set him up. And they asked, is it lawful? That doesn't mean, is it legal? That means, is it biblical for a man to divorce his wife for for any and every reason? Now, don't miss what they just said. Any or every reason. So can I get rid of my wife because she ordered the wrong pizza? Can I get rid of my wife because I found something hotter and younger and sexier? Can I get rid of my wife because I just don't like that she colored her hair one way? Can I get rid of my wife just because I'm bored? Can I get rid of a wife for any reason that I can think of as a man? Now, there are two religious views at this moment in history within the Orthodox Jewish community. One said divorce could only happen because of sexual misconduct. The other group under a teacher named Hallel said a man could divorce his wife for anything. And the examples he used to his followers was if your wife spoils a dish of food or if you found someone who's more beautiful, you can say bye, 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 and then say hi, hi, hi. So the real question being worked out here is this. Which school is Jesus with? Now, I want you to imagine the moment. These Pharisees, these pastors, these educators, these theologians, they stop and they are trying to trap Jesus and test Jesus. They want to know what this new superstar wandering prophet is about to say. Now, amazingly, I don't know if you've ever caught this. I didn't. Jesus responds to them just like he did with the devil in the wilderness. He directly responds to them by giving them God's word. Why? Because God's word is embodied truth. And God's word is from the mouth and heart of God. And God's word transcends culture, idea, philosophy, and opinion. Now he looks at them and he knows they don't really care. They're not actually asking the question pastorally. They don't care about the person who's been trapped because here's the truth. They probably believe they're better off because they've never been divorced. And you know those divorced people. They know that he knows that they don't care about sin or the pain or the deep questions or the wounds that come from divorce. They're broken people, the wake of lost dreams and hopes. He knows they don't even care about some of the people who will be destitute economically because of divorce. They just want to fight over what's allowable and Jesus wants to show them what is desirable. So he says, boys, I mean, haven't you read your Old Testament? 
That at the beginning, the creator, don't forget he uses that for a reason. The creator has made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and a mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no person separate. So Jesus goes behind the trap and the scribal debate of the time and he goes straight to the jugular. He says, but this is what God's will is. He's about to trump scripture with scripture, as we'll see. Now, he's quoting Genesis 2.24, the summary of the creator's plan. Humans made in the image of God are different from each other. They're male and female. They are meant for each other. And marriage, according to a Judeo-Christian worldview, is a permanent long-term bond only between men and women. And that new union is consecrated by the act of sex. And God, this is the word in the Bible, hates divorce because it ultimately tears apart and severs what God has done and what's supposed to be permanent. And he reminds these pastor scholars that the two have become one flesh. They're no longer two entities. They're two that share one essence. God is the one that brings us together, and it is the sinful state of us that does the separating. So to see divorce, just think about this this morning, to see divorce as people undoing God's personal work, puts the whole issue in a radical new perspective. Now, that was Jesus' point to these leaders, but they don't like the answer and they're not done. So they say, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay, so they're quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman, who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house? Now, the word indecent is key here. This is where the two religious factions were fighting indecent as sexual misconduct or indecent as anything I deem as indecent as a man. But what you need to do is go back to understand the three reasons why Moses even allowed this in the first place. It's one pastor scholar who wrote these words. Why in the world did Moses do this and allow this? Well, number one, it was actually to protect the sanctity of marriage from something indecent that would defile the relationship. In other words, it was a way to say marriage is significant and certain things can actually destroy it. Second, it's actually to protect women. You're like, what? Oh, yeah. Moses does this to protect women from husbands who might just simply send her away without any cause. And third and most importantly, which a lot of us as modern Christians miss is this, it was to document her status as legitimately divorced so she would not be thought of or accused of being a sex trade worker or a runaway adulteress. Why does that matter? Because in Moses' time, if you committed the sin of adultery, the result was capital punishment, death by public stoning. And so Moses institutes this So there had to be grounds and also someone would not actually face a penalty they did not deserve. So they say to Jesus, hey, Moses, notice the language, commanded us to do this. And let me just say this again, Jesus, in case you missed this. Moses. Because for Orthodox Jews, there's God and Moses. This was a power play. This is name dropping on the highest scale. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. This wasn't command. This was a concession. 
Moses didn't command this. He allowed this. And the Pharisees had started taking this as a positive command and affirmation. And Jesus points out, no, no, it's a concession because of sin. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hardened. Not your wife. You've got the problem. And it was not this way from the beginning. At any time when a marriage goes south, it is a sign of sin. Something has gone terribly wrong between one or both or everyone. Divorce is never a neutral thing or a neutral option. It is done because you have hardness of heart. Not loving, not patient, not forgiving, not other-centered. Fill in the fruit of the Spirit. Now Jesus hits the real reason for divorce. It's hardness of heart. And again, he says these words. And by the way, this is so critical. He says, it was not always like this since the what? Beginning. See, Jesus goes back to Genesis He appeals behind Moses. He trumps scripture with scripture. And here's what we've got to get back to again. I've said this multiple times in the last two years. For Jesus, and oh, by the way, is Jesus the son of God? Is he God in flesh, yes or no? Yes. So Jesus, when he says this, watch this. For Jesus and Paul, as we'll see, actually all the biblical writers, sexuality and gender and marriage is defined by Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. When Jesus declares this is the standard, he is doing it as God. So many people say Jesus never spoke about issues of gender or sexuality. He just did. So Jesus responds, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman is committing adultery. Now that phrase, marital unfaithfulness, matters. It's actually the same word where we have been studying in other passages before. It's the same word, porneia, where we get our modern word pornography from. It was that Orthodox Jewish catch-all phrase that summed up every single forbidden sexual act in the Old Testament. It always, for an Orthodox Jew, included incest, premarital sex, adultery, one-night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, orgies, were all on the table when someone would say this. All of these acts are porneia, and all of these acts violate the covenant you have with your spouse. If a partner does these acts, they sin against God themselves and their spouse. And Jesus says here, you are allowed to divorce your partner if they get involved in these sexual forbidden acts. Why? Because they break the bonds of trust, they break the agreement, they violate the two becoming one flesh. Now like Moses, Jesus allowed for some hardness of heart. But don't miss it. He also allows for remarriage. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What Jesus is saying is if you actually divorce on right grounds, you can get remarried. I mean, Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, porneia, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced women commits adultery. The innocent party, or the more innocent party, we should say, has the right to remarry because the marriage is now broken, and when the divorce happens, the marriage is dissolved in God's eyes. See, the idea of biblical divorce is to, give the, is to make clear that the faithful marriage partner is free to remarry. It follows the same teaching as death of a spouse. Now, years later, after Jesus had taught this, Paul comes onto the scene, and he's writing to this church in Corinth. 
And this church, just like our church, remembers living in this massive, sexualized, multicultural, pluralistic world, trying to work out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it it comes to this issue, and he responds, and by the way, we're going to see, he literally quotes Jesus. He's familiar. So in 1 Corinthians 7.10, it reads like this, to the married, I give this command. It's not me, by the way, it's Jesus. A wife must not separate from her husband, and if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So the first thing he says is, look, Jesus has the final say in this conversation. I'm not telling you this, Paul says. Jesus is telling you this. And interestingly, if you read this, he is quoting Mark 10. But he doesn't actually talk about the exception of adultery. Why? Because he's just dealing at this moment with the overarching general command. Now, from Jesus, Paul moves to deal with issues that Jesus did not address around divorce and remarriage because there was no church yet. So what do you do, the question came up, what do you do with a spiritually mixed marriage? What happens when one spouse becomes a Christian after the wedding day and the other one is not? And some believers in the church in Corinth started thinking, oh my goodness, my normal sexual life with my husband or wife, which is good and fun and I enjoy, actually is probably defiling me before God because they don't love Jesus and now I do. I have the Holy Spirit and they don't. Now, don't miss this. This is amazing, by the way. Paul assumes that men and women in the church will have unbelieving spouses. You say, well, isn't that obvious? No. Paul never believed that our faith should be or could be forced or coerced or mandated. In other words, what we already see in here is this unbelievable idea of religious independence in marriage, which is striking in any time of history, let alone this time. In other words, Paul is saying people have the choice and the right to choose who they follow. In some of the largest religions today, that is still not found. But in Christianity, we fundamentally reject the idea that we force anyone to accept Jesus. We accept him out of love. So Paul responds. He says, look, to the rest I say this. It's me, not Jesus. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. A Christian, he says, a fully devoted follower of Jesus, a devoted one, a a sent one, should stay in a marriage and not divorce their spouse because their spouse does not want Jesus to be Savior, leader, and Lord. The believer, a Christian, may not initiate divorce for this reason. And to the question at hand, a Christian standing before God is not diminished or compromised because they're married to a non-Christian. Actually, everything we heard last week about sex and marriage, healthy, regular sex is exactly what God would expect in a mixed marriage as much as a Christian marriage. But this is huge, of course. There is a massive tension that is introduced most of the time when a husband or wife becomes a follower of Jesus. They have a new Savior, a new Lord, a new allegiance, a greater love, which is even more important than their current marriage. The line of old and new creation, darkness and light, is experienced in the close quarters of marriage. And it gets even more tense when the other spouse is agnostic or an atheist or a nominal Christian or follows another religion or another God or another spiritual idea. I don't know if you've ever read that little book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, but in the movie version of it, you see the pain of it 
When his wife becomes a follower of Jesus and he is an agnostic or atheist journalist and in the middle of this tension in their marriage, he literally yells at his wife, I just want my old wife back. Why do you love Jesus more than you love me? Much of the time, this becomes the reason for marriage breakup, which ends in divorce. It becomes intolerable for an unbelieving spouse to put up with a new Jesus in the room. And that's where actually Paul begins to speak about divorce and remarriage. He says, you know, for an unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if an unbeliever leaves, let them do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. See, the case is different if the unbeliever doesn't want to stay. And if they leave, the believer is not bound to stay. And that phrase, is not bound, by the way, is so critically important if you're taking notes for Connect Group this week. It means the more innocent party is free to remarry. It would be a bizarre expression if Paul was saying, well, a Christian is bound to remain unmarried. No, it's the exact language he uses for widows in Romans 7.2. By God's law, a, marriage woman, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So Paul says, actually, there are moments where you can get divorced, and God's fine with it. And not only that, you can get remarried. But literally when he utters those words, he says, oh, hold on. But I want to encourage you actually not to do what I just said. I want to begin to show you the power and the necessity of you staying until there is no other option. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you're going to save your wife? You don't know now whether as a believer in Jesus, you're just going to actually help lead your unbelieving spouse to Jesus. Your literal presence in the marriage brings now the very presence of God into your home, into your marriage bed, into your, into your marriage, along with your kids. See, some of you are spiritually single here this morning. Let me just say this to you. You're not alone with your spouse any longer. Jesus Christ is in the room with you now too. So Paul says you keep going as long as possible in the hope that the one you live with and the one that you're married to and the one that you love will meet Jesus too like you have and make him Savior and Lord. God has called us to be marked as people of peace. Perhaps you will be involved in the story of your spouse getting saved. Now that's a lot to process. A lot to talk about in our connect groups. I'm sure our connect groups are just full of interesting conversations between last week and this week. And here's the question we need to ask this morning. What do we do with such direct, in-your-face statements by God? Especially since we live in a postmodern world that says there's no absolute truth and there's no standards except you. Well, number one, let's not forget this is written to Christians. For we who have claimed Jesus as Savior and Lord and been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this is what we've agreed to. And second of all, we just can't hear God's word. We need to act on God's word. So number one here, marriage according to Paul and Jesus is the highest form of human covenant. In other words, if you're married here this morning, and many of you are and many of you are not, but for you who are, you need to fight for your marriage. And for you who are not married, but you know people are married, you need to fight for their marriages too. And we need to now see our marriages through the lens and the eyes of heaven. They're not just some modern legal contract. 
They're the will of God and are supposed to be permanent, lifelong, and, and acts of worship. I love when one person, I think it was Gary Chapman, and said, marriage isn't to make you happy first. It makes you holy, and then you get to happiness later. Anyone want to say amen? Yeah, amen. Yeah. yeah. As we saw last week, Paul in this passage reminds us one of the most important ways we fight for our marriage is being involved in regular, healthy sex. It needs to be regular and mutual. And by the way, like I said last week, let me say it again today. If this facet of your relationship is suffering or died, or another facet of your relationship is dying, then you don't just say, well, I'm done. You stop and you begin to pray because when you begin to pray, God shows up. Number two, you talk about it. Secrets are not how our movement functions. We're open about our struggles. And third of all, if the issues are severe, you reach out and get help. That's why I said last week, this church is so absolutely committed to the idea of building long-term safe environments where we can actually work out our issues so we can obey the scriptures joyfully. That's why we launched Freedom Session last week. By the way, good news, 150 plus people showed up just to check it out. Isn't that amazing? You can clap to that. That's just amazing. And if you, by the way, were supposed to be one of those people and you freaked out, Go. That's why we're serious about restoration prayer in this church. It's why we're unashamed that we in this church systematically pray with people so the devil will have no foothold in any marriage or any person in this church. That's why we're not afraid to talk about therapy in this church because there are good things we can learn, especially in Christian therapy. The goal is restoration and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of God's word and the help and rallying of our community, real healing is possible. And like I said last week, I say it again, our God is into bringing things back from the dead. It's what he did with his son and so it can happen with a dead or dying marriage. So take steps on this side of eternity to find healing and freedom so you can actually demonstrate the love of God now. Second of all, divorce is allowed for followers of Jesus in cases of pornea, sexual misconduct, and abandonment by a non-believing spouse. Though all divorce is result of sin, not all divorce is sinful. The goal is to give people freedom not to be bound in terrible and wrong situations. Some of you are saying, John, I just want to make this clear. Does Paul say, I can remarry with God's blessing if my spouse left because of my faith? Yes, you may. Paul uses the exact same terminology and understanding later at the end of chapter 7 when he's speaking to those who are now widows. And he says this in verse 39, if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Okay, let me just stop for a second and just point that out. He must belong to the Lord. Christians are forbidden from marrying non-Christians. You can't do it. And I mean Christians. I, I, as a pastor, hear this all the time. Is he a Christian? Oh, yeah, you know, he's a Christian. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, like he went to Catholic church, you know, once. No, that's not a Christian. A genuine, committed, baptized follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is clear. We are not allowed to be unequally yoked. And Jesus is the epicenter of a marriage. Why? Because the more I love Jesus, the more I love my spouse. So Paul says, yeah, you can get remarried, but make sure he or she is a follower of Jesus. Now, lots of you have been sitting here today and you say, John, thanks for all of that. But actually, you haven't covered anything I want to talk about. What about all, all the other issues? What about real abuse, John, in a Christian marriage? 
What about a Christian that walks away from me? I'm abandoned not by a non-Christian, but a supposed follower of Jesus. What about prolonged addictions like drugs or alcohol or a porn addiction that just will not give away? What about insanity? What do I do about this? One person really helped me, Craig Bloomberg, and he wrote these words, and I want you to lean in and listen as I say these words. He said, you know, the question remains open as whether or not there are other situations in which divorce and remarriage are permitted for followers of Jesus. He said, you know, a promising approach to answering this question arises when we ask the question, what does adultery and desertion have in common that makes, that makes divorce permissible in those two instances? Now, if we recall the foundational biblical definition of marriage from Genesis is leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh. It's noteworthy that adultery undermines the unique one flesh relationship and desertion makes it impossible to continue to leave and cleave, including sex. So this suggests that what these two behaviors share is that each of them dissolves a marriage even before it becomes legally dissolved. To determine if divorce is ever otherwise permitted, we must ask if any other circumstance provide, proves equally so damaging for all intents and purposes that the marriage is already destroyed and a divorce is nothing but acknowledging the legal reality. So then rather than trying to create a super list, which all Christians always want to do, each situation has to be considered case by case, including cases of adultery and desertion, since even then, listen closely, reconciliation remains ideal if possible. Of course, to open the door, even to the possibility of other circumstances, is to run the risk of greatly abusing that freedom, of course, but to refuse legalistically such expectations will do more physical and emotional damage to an individual. Here's the key what I'm teaching you today. Number one, if you're single, don't get married quickly and rashly. If you're married already, don't rashly or quickly get divorced. And don't ever make the decision by yourself. See, what Paul is saying here is this. What we need to do is you need to come to community, to your connect group, to the church leadership for support and process. Paul is show, showing us that we have to respond case by case. He was addressing this type of abandonment, but not all the other issues. This was never supposed to be the super list on divorce and remarriage. That's why we have to deal with this tough reality of divorce together, prayerfully, biblically, and communally. Are there other things that actually do the exact same thing as adultery and desertion? Now, some of you, maybe many of you are sitting here today and you're like, John, here's the truth. When you're talking, I just got divorced and it was wrong. Pure and simple, wrong. I got no excuse. I had an affair. I didn't like her anymore. I didn't like him anymore. I didn't like the pizza ordering. Whatever it is, I just didn't, I'm out. And now I'm sitting here and I'm hearing you say that God actually put us together and now I've undone his work. So what do I do? Am I a forever adulterer? No. Number one, here's the first step you need to do. Repent. You're like, what do you mean? Admit you sinned. Put all the excuses on the table. Put all the excuses of your divorce on the table and just confess it. Say, you know what? Though there was some wrong done to me and wrong... Listen, God, I need to confess that actually my divorce was sinful. I'm agreeing with your position, not my position. Not my family's position, not my... Your position. And once we've sinned and we've admitted it, what does the Bible say? There is profound forgiveness. 
Don't make excuses, just be honest. And if you've sinned, God promises like all sin, he will make you clean. And if you're married again already, then just I want to say you stay in that marriage and you dedicate it to God and you do everything I've taught today and last week and you put all that life back into your marriage. Now here's the next thing we need to talk about is reconciliation. Now some of you are actually divorced right now and you're not remarried and your spouse isn't remarried. And here's what I want to say to you. There is a possibility that you might be able to reconcile with that person. When God is involved, never discount resurrection from the dead. So don't rush into a new marriage. Just stop and wait. We have multiple stories in this church where God showed up in a profound way and people who had not been divorced or were legally separated got back together. We even have stories in this church who people who actually were divorced remarried under Jesus' name. Now others of you are sitting here and going, actually... I'm still married. I'm not sure what to do. All I want to say to you is reconciliation is always God's heart and will. It's the harder road. It's the more difficult road. But Jesus will sustain you. And even some of you here today have the right to leave your spouse. Because they've actually abandoned you or they've committed pornea or something else. But I'm telling you today, it will be hard and it will take a lot of work. But reconciliation still might be possible. Some of you are saying, well, John, actually, I got divorced before I was a Christian. What does that mean? It means that you were divorced before you're a Christian and you're forgiven. The slate is clean. So there's so much for us <coughs> to think through and walk through in our connect groups with ourselves, with pastors and others this week. But this is where I want to end, right here. As I was praying and thinking about this very difficult subject all week, the group that came to my mind the most, and I actually believe Jesus spoke to me personally to speak to you, was actually those who are spiritually single, which shocked me. And here's what I believe I'm supposed to say. Some of you, maybe many of you here sitting today, listening online up in Port Perry, later in Bowmanville, you're spiritually single. That is, you're in a marriage and you're the Christian and your spouse is not. So here's what I want to say to you as a pastor, as a fellow Christian, but on behalf of Jesus himself. You are not alone. Some, someone here needs to hear that today. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. But not only is Jesus with you, here's what I want to say on behalf of our church. We're with you too. I know it's so difficult. You walk into church week in and week out, and you see all these couples, right? And they got their stuff and their problem and their drama. And you hear them complain back and forth, but the thing that breaks your heart all the time is, yeah, but at least he's a Christian. At least there's no fight if I bring the kids to church or not, right? And I just want to say to you this morning, forgive us for our ignorance and our lack of sensitivity towards that pain in you and help us get better at this. Remind us in connect groups, you know what, I'm spiritually single. I'm not being dramatic, I just, I need you to support me. And I just want to say on behalf of the church that we are also committed to praying for your spouse. So here's what I want to do. We usually never do this. If you are spiritually single and you're comfortable, could you raise your hand, do that right now, or even stand. I know it's a little weird, very un-Canadian, but it's going to be okay. And we just want to pray for you right across all of our church because this is so critical for you. So let's do this together. Lord Jesus Christ, number one issue, difficult, relevant, helpful. And we just pray, number one, guard every marriage in our church. Would you do that? Number two, Lord, would you intervene miraculously in divorce situations? 
intervene in marriages that are dead. They're legally together, but they're dead. Give joy in marriages. For those marriages that are doing well, we pray they'd keep together. And we just take a moment too and say, Lord, forgive us where we've maybe sinned. Maybe where we've actually inappropriately dismissed your view of marriage or we've walked out and we've divorced. Just forgive us. Lord, forgive some of us for being so fearful that we won't get help. Forgive us for our pride. But we want to end by just saying, we pray, Lord, right now for every spiritually single person in our church who loves Jesus and is following Jesus, but honestly feels really alone. And we pray a few things. Number one, uh, Holy Spirit, you're in them. Would you make yourself known to them uh, in the middle of their home, in the middle of life? Number two, help us to be sensitive, Lord. Begin to build community around them in some new ways. And lastly, here's what we all pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the salvation of their families. Save their husbands and, and their wives and their, and their children. Do the impossible, we ask, as an evidence of your ongoing love and move in this church. Lord, we in, invite the love of God, the healing of God, but we also invite the lordship of Jesus into this part of our church too. We've prayed for revival. We keep praying for revival. We pray for the lordship of Jesus to be embraced here. We do this in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.